Welcome to Market Pulse, a subset of the Faster Forward series, where experts share their insights on current trends in the markets and the financial landscape. My name is Paul Fahey. I'm the head of investments Ada Science here at Northern Trust, and I will be your host for today's episode. Joining me is Grant Chauncey, head of Capital Markets Client Solutions Americas here at Northern Trust. Grant, when you were last here at the uh, at this episode, you talked about the market and changes in the investment environment particularly as it relates to the levels of interest rates. For those that may have missed it, can you briefly summarize? Sure. So what we talked about at the last podcast was a shift in the interest rate environment. If you look where we've come from the last roughly 40 years, starting in the early early 80s, we had a, a period of very high interest rates and a very steady decline up until the global financial crisis. And then a period of about 15 years of ultra low rates. And what we're moving into now is a period of sustained higher rates and ultimately a return of real inflation, of real interest rates, a positive real interest rates. Um, the, the two proof points we talked about the last podcast that are driving that shift is the huge amount of government deficit spending from the United States. We talked about the, con- put that in context in the last episode, I encourage folks to go back and have a look at it because it's a very bad situation. And it's one I think we've become somewhat callous to because it's been talked about so much. But we're getting to the point where our $33 trillion current deficit could grow as much as up to $60 trillion in the next 20 or so years. So huge amount of debt that we're, we're raising. The first quarter alone, there's an estimate by the Treasury Department of $400 billion in fresh treasuries to be issued. So that's going to crowd out a lot of credit needs in the market, and it's going to ultimately push interest rates uh, to a higher level than we have seen, especially over the last 15 years. The other trend that we talked about was inflation. We'll talk some more about that today. But we do have a number of higher inflationary trends that we're starting to see that could make it a little bit higher to realize the Fed's target of 2% going forward. So this this trend from declining low interest rates to higher is a fundamentally significant shift in the market. It's going to change how investments work in in the investment uh, environment. And it's going to catch a lot of folks off guard, I think. We've already seen a bunch of banks that failed in the beginning of this year in the United States. And those were predominantly banks, or all banks, that were founded after this last interest rate cycle started. So they had no experience outside of declining in low interest rates. The banks that failed, like uh, SVB and uh, First Republic, and I presume we're probably going to see some other investors that might be caught off guard because they're expecting interest rates to go back at some point to a, a very low level. Well, given that um, and given Fed uh, Chairman Powell's uh, recent comment that the we're likely at the highest rate for the benchmark for this cycle, are you in favor or are you in agreement that the 125 basis point reduction that we're seeing people predict for next year is uh, is likely to happen, or do you foresee something else? I, I, it's hard to really say in a crystal ball what's going to happen next year, obviously, um, and that's not really the intent of looking at these trends from a longer standpoint. The, the higher interest rate and positive real rates is probably going to be multi-cycle, so it's going to have happen over a number of economic cycles up and down, and there's going to be some variation of interest rates in that, in that time period. Um, our economists at Northern Trust anticipate uh, three cuts next year, starting in the second half of the year. And that tent seems to be kind of a general consensus. The fu- futures market right now is predicting about 140 basis points of, of cuts next year, potentially starting as early as March. 
uh, regardless, even if you got down Fed funds next year ended up to three, three and a half, four percent. And if the if the yield curve starts to normalize, that's still well within what I would expect to be moderately high rates. One thing that'll be interesting to see is the Fed historically has not kept rates at the peak level for more than a, usually over a year. I think the longest was in 2006-7 when they left it for about 15 months. So the last cut, last raises came in July of this year. If the first cuts don't happen to the second half of next year, that would equal the longest that we have been at the peak rate if indeed that, that does uh, unfold. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, um, whatever happens in the next year is probably not going to, to really drive what happens in, say, the next 10 to 15 years, which is the sort of cycle that I'm talking about. Um, what would cause us to go down to low interest rates, to ultra low, it would be either a really bad recession bordering on depression. You could potentially see a stagflation or disinflationary shift if you had a bubble burst and, uh, you know, declining uh, work population, uh, similar to what happened in Japan and what seems to be maybe happening uh, in China in early stages. Uh, and certainly if you had some sort of supply glut, you might see inflation come down, the interest rates uh, uh, come down with it. So there are some scenarios that we could end up in an ultra low rate environment again, but those seem to be you know, far less likely than a period of higher moderate rates uh, sustaining through multiple economic cycles. Yeah, I think that's an agreement what we're seeing from our own economist. Um, I think he's thinking about how do we stick what he says is a soft landing. Um, but given the rates where they are, what do you think is the impact? And, and most importantly for our clients, what do you think are the impact for those investors? Well, for one, fixed income is back in a big way. We've seen a lot of flows into fixed income, those funds. Uh, you and I were talking uh, a minute ago about uh, the first three quarters of this year, fixed income flows have actually outpaced equity flows uh, through 2023. So that's a big, a, a big part of what's happening is fixed income is back. And it's sort of funny that we're talking on this particular show so much about fixed income because that would not have been the case for the, for the better part of the last 15 years. So we are seeing our investors go more into fixed income. Um, our fixed income trading desk has seen two times the volume that we did two years ago. And a lot of that has been into true treasuries, into investment grade uh, corporate. So you're looking at moving into uh, you know, safer investment vehicles, more liquid, moving up the capital chain. You have to remember, Paul, you've only got to go back to 1992 when the average public pension fund in the United States had mo more of its assets than anything else in fixed income. If you go back to 92, the average rate of assumption, rate of return assumption was about 5%, I'm sorry, about 8%. And the 30-year treasury was paying about 30% uh, as well. So a, a pension fund in the United States as recently as 92 could have is you know more than half of their, of their investment portfolio in fixed income and meet their rate assumptions. So if you look at that and if we say we're at the the end of the rate hike cycle, do you see that as a buying opportunity before that really does, uh, I suppose, settle into the, the normal cycle? And, and what other trends, in addition to what you've just mentioned, what other trends you, you think we're going to see in the uh, fixed income space? A lot of buying has already been happening. Uh, in fact, some of the buying trends are starting to shift a little bit. So for the majority of this year, we saw investors 
buying heavy in short-term treasuries, particularly the T-bills. There's not a, a lot of buying of coupons. So we're talking the notes and the bonds to pay coupons, so anything over one year. A lot of the buying was really focused in on uh, the, the one-year and in-duration uh, T-bills and to a certain extent even into one- and two-year notes. That is starting to shift some. So that while that was the trend for the majority of the year, the last two weeks, we've seen some of the largest flows out of treasury funds that we've seen since roughly middle of 2020. And we're seeing a lot of buying now into investment grade corporates. So the spreads have really tightened on investment grades in the last few weeks. Uh, they, in November, we saw some of our clients moving out of treasuries and starting to go a little bit more into investment grade um, we Triple B, for example, was paying triple B rated uh, credit, was paying upwards of 8% and even higher in some instances. And we're talking quality names, household names that, that a lot, a lot of uh, listeners would, would be familiar with. So that trade has already started and those spreads have further tightened. High yield has also tightened to a degree, probably not quite as much as IG. Um, and there's been a little bit of a, a, a differentiation in the market between what's perceived to be better quality high yield and less quality, but by and large high yield spreads have also tightened. On the, on the mortgage back side, the mortgages haven't uh, attracted as much attention. That's changing a little bit. We're seeing some renewed interest in agency mortgages right now. And the one area where spreads are still relatively wide is in asset backed securities. I think that's being driven a lot by supply. We're seeing a number of banks right now take their uh, loan balance, particularly auto loans, and securitize those and then issue those. So there's a bit of supply right there, which has widened asset-based spreads recently. So uh, by and large, still a lot of buying across the spectrum in fixed income. We've seen uh, big, big rallies uh, across the board. Um, and I think people are starting to go a little bit longer out, to your point, starting to move their average weighted duration a little bit further out because some of the expectation is that this particular cycle of, of interest rate hikes is long in the tooth. So they're not putting themselves at risk. Similarly, you mentioned two banks this year that failed in large part because they were so far out the curve uh, when rates went up. Um, so you don't expect to see any of that again in the, uh, in the foreseeable future. Well, we are seeing in certain instances, banks actually increase their use of broker deposits. So actually buying deposits because there continues to be relatively weak demand for bank deposits. So that's something that we want to keep an eye on. The other thing that I'm worried about is because we have seen less buying of T-bills, which has been the strongest area of demand for treasuries recently. If you remember in the last podcast, we talked a bit about where the where the Treasury Department is issuing their treasuries, and it this year has been very heavy on the T-bill side, on the short end. More than 50% of treasuries issued in 2023 were in the form of T-bills, which is much higher than the treasury's target of under 20%. And the reason for that is there's just been tremendous interest. And that's kind of what led to some of these banks faltering was they didn't have a great match. They thought their deposits were a lot stickier than they really were. When interest rates rose, they didn't have a good match in their balance sheet. And consequently to that, a lot of deposits were pulled out of the banks. Um, and one of the, the top areas that those monies went to was government money funds and prime funds for that matter, and really directly into treasury. So if that treasury buying in the short end is not uh, going, you know, is not seeing as much interest going forward, then the 
then the Treasury Department and, and thereby the federal government might also have a bit of an issue. So this is definitely an area, Paul, to keep an eye on both at, from the bank level who are you know, still having to use broker deposits to a degree. Um, and then how's the Treasury Department next year going to pivot, um, issuing $400 billion of treasuries in the first quarter, and we're running, you know, $1.5 plus trillion deficits every single year. So a um, lot of things that we'll have to keep an eye on headed into 2024. Yeah, you, you mentioned the flow into uh, the, the flows into fixed income funds uh, outstripping equity. Um, and a lot of that was into passive and that's usually a precursor for the flow into active. Um, but switching gears a little bit on the equity side, what do you think are the uh, the impacts we're going to see to the equity markets? And how is that going to affect investors as we move forward? Well, we've, we've had uh, seven weeks of, of the markets, the equity markets in the United States being up. So it's a heck of a, of a bull run that we have seen in the last almost two months with uh, – you know, really sentiment being very positive. This is a sentiment-driven rally recently. We've got um, a lot of a lot of investors are risk on right now, and you're seeing that in the options market. The we're, we're having a record volume of calls in IWM, which is the Russell 2000 ETF. That's the the highest level ever. And even last week, S&P 500 uh, option calls also hit a record. Very little interest. On the, on the flip side and buying puts right now. In fact, puts are as cheap to buy as they've been in at least five years. So we're seeing very much a risk on in the options market. Very little people are hedging themselves in this environment right now. And that's a pivot from just even October. It, if you look at the American Association of Individual Investors, they do a regular survey of bulls and, and, and bears. In October, when they did the survey, there were 26% more retail investors were bearish than bullish. Now it's 32% bullish more than bearish. So it's done a complete 180 in the last, call it two months. And a lot of that has is those retail investors have gotten more bullish, put a lot more money into the market. That's that's really been a broad um, um, you know, appreciation of stocks. Up until November, it was really the Magnificent Seven that ran um, the, the stock markets up in the U.S. Now we're seeing a much broader uh, a mix of stocks. I think something around 80% of U.S. equities right now are at or are approaching the, the uh, their 200-day moving average or above it. So we're seeing really good breadth in the market, which is a very good sign because we hadn't seen that for, for much of the year. Uh, it does concern me some that we're not seeing many people think about protecting their portfolio. And that's why you're seeing this uh, call put skew where the relative price of calls is a lot higher than the relative price of puts because so many people right now are bullish headed into the end of the year. A um, couple of other just comments on the equity markets because we haven't had, uh, other than the last couple of months, a real broad-based rally. There are a lot of pockets of very low valuation in the equity market. And so um, if you think about the Magnificent Seven and tech, those are relatively high valuations. And as a result, the S&P 500, both historically and a relative basis, is, is, is fairly highly priced. Not extreme, but uh, on the higher end. But if you look kind of across, within, even in the U.S. equity market, small caps, which have performed very well recently, are on a relative basis still very cheap. So they're continuing to do very well um, uh, in the market and seem to have 
uh, the potential to, to rise if, if the valuations or anything to, uh, you know, to indicate. Um, but you're also uh, energy stocks, very, very cheap right now, very, very cheap in the low end. Developed market, particularly the UK, is also very inexpensive. And even emerging market equities, on a relative basis to developed, uh, the emerging market equities are as cheap on a relative basis as they've probably been in 40 years compared to developed markets. So a lot of a lot of areas out there that have not seen in the equity space money come into it. And it's the reason, if you go back to the last 15 years, the U.S. equity market has outperformed MSCI XUS for 13 out of 15 years. You only have to go back to 2015 when U.S. stocks and developed European stocks had roughly the same multiple. And they have really done quite a, a, a different path forward over that last you know, seven or eight years. So we're, we're definitely seeing pockets where there's high multiples. Uh, Magnificent Seven is probably the best example of that. And then there's areas where there's tremendous valuation out there. Well, you, you mentioned the Magnificent Seven. I think with the exception of Amazon, they have a pretty even revenue split U.S. to non-U.S. I think Amazon is still fairly uh, heavily weighted in the U.S. And one of our colleagues, a big fan of, you mentioned the U.K., Japan and Brazil as being uh, undervalued. Is there anywhere else you're seeing that we, we should be looking at from a valuation or just generally what else in the, the marketplace are you looking at to say we should keep an eye on that? Well, it's uh, sometimes a bit of a four-letter word nowadays, but energy stocks are very, very cheap right now. And... Um, it, you know, if you look at energy prices, we're at three-year lows. The the concern around energy is that demand for energy, particularly oil, is relatively inelastic. Folks don't realize, despite the trillions of dollars that we've spent around the world trying to move to renewables, 80% of the world's energy still comes from uh, from fossil fuels. So, you know, oil, coal, and ultimately natural gas uh, in that order. So that, that is still a, a huge source of energy in the world. And uh, there is a lot of concern around investment going back into, um, you know, to fossil fuels for obvious reasons. It's a, it's a dying energy source, but it's still a, a major energy source. If you look around the, 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 the world right now, there are a lot of geopolitical events in areas that could have an impact on oil supply, and it doesn't take a lot of supply to see uh, energy prices rise. So that's one area I think to kind of keep an eye on, and we'll continue to keep an eye uh, on that. But if you look at um, the Middle East with the Israel and Hamas war, if you consider what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but even in areas like the Red Sea, where a number of, of container ships have, have uh, container ship companies have stopped shipping through the Red Sea. The Suez Canal is a major port uh, or is a major path where oil is transported going around Africa takes a lot longer. So because of, of uh, issues with uh, rebels and Yemen um, attacking container ships, there's a number of companies that are starting to avoid that area. The other area to keep an eye on right now is Venezuela and Guyana. Uh, Venezuela came out the beginning of December and uh, being very envious of the fact that Guyana has one of the largest offshore developments of oil right now going on in the world, perhaps ever, that they now want that. And so they have raised a hundred euro plus uh, border dispute to suggest that two thirds of Guyana should now be their territory, including these oil fields, and have told these oil companies they've got three months to leave. So any number of these situations could rise oil prices. Uh, so you've got oil at a three-year low, and you also have um, oil stocks trading at multiples that are historically low. So that's probably one area if you think about tail risk um, to be thinking about. 
you know, setting aside that uh, fossil fuels is a dying industry and that pun. Uh, let's hope the price of oil stays low for the uh, holiday season and the travel here in the U.S. Um, just as you look out, anything else that investors should be considering that they should be thinking about as we uh, head into the end of the year and obviously set ourselves up for uh, 2024? Well, let's start with oil prices. Um, if you look at the CPI numbers that came out last week in the U.S., the U.S. CPI came out at 3.1% annualized inflation, which is a great result. It's it's going towards the ultimate 2% target that the that the Fed has. The If you break that down by the components, the core inflation was 4%, so that doesn't include energy or food. Food was up 2.9, but energy was down 54 so if we do have any moderation of energy prices or a pick back up, that not only is going to prevent pre- present a significant headwind to the direction of inflation in the United States, but also food prices are going to go up. You know, farming is a very labor intensive, uh, or I'm sorry, energy intensive industry. Uh, obviously, diesel to power equipment, but folks don't realize propane. One of the u- top uses of propane in the United States is for drying grain for storage and shipment. And natural gas uh, is used to produce uh, fertilizer, particularly nitrogen fertilizer, for example. So low oil and and gas prices have really been a good tailwind for the moderation of inflation. If that changes, uh, we could see inflation pick back up. And and, and ultimately, um, it's still going to be a a fight for, for the Fed. The other area that the Fed has to worry about is the U.S. dollar weakening. We've had significant over the last two weeks, significant weakening of the U.S. dollar that actually played into higher import prices. Import prices have been trending a little bit higher than a lot of the analysts expected. So if the U.S. dollar continues to weaken and or um, energy prices moderate or go back up, those are going to present headwinds to the CPI. So both uh, are worth monitoring as we think about the direction of the equity markets and inflation and, and as a result, interest rates going forward. Um, a lot of folks are concerned around how the Fed's going to get to the CPI at 2% because so much has to be just perfect to get to that level. So uh, I would encourage investors to keep an eye on where energy is going and, and where the U.S. dollar is going as well. Any final thoughts for investors as we uh, head into 2024? Well, I was looking at a uh, the forecast from the leading 13 investment banks, all the household names that everyone would be familiar with. And it really struck me how similar these forecasts were. So of the, of the 13 investment banks that I, I, I looked at the forecast, all 13 expect next year either a soft landing or a very mild recession. All 13 expect inflation rates to be at or very near the target of 2%. 11 of the 13 expect Fed cuts to happen to Fed funds rate, most of which is the second half of the year. And 11 of the 13 are projecting that the S&P 500 is going to end in a range of roughly 4,500 to 5,100. The two outside of that, I think, was one around 4,200, one was 4,300. So we're talking pretty tight ranges on a number of projections that are challenging to get. So whenever I see that, that gives me some concern that everybody has this Goldilocks approach to next year. There could be surprises. And that's something that we'll continue to monitor. We'll bring out either in the A-suite, um, which is on our uh, website and also LinkedIn as well in this podcast, 
is what's going on on the front line of capital markets. What could these surprises be so that we can make sure that our clients and, and investors that we work with are aware of what could possibly happen? Because it is a little concerning that so many of these forecasts are, are really similar. So there could be some surprises next year if we don't have that perfect Goldilocks landing. Well, thanks, Grant. Really great discussion, great insights. As always, to all of our listeners, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to the next Market Pulse brought to you by Faster Forward. <laughs>